Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is where I want to direct your attention this morning as we're continuing our way through this gospel. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures. I'll be reading from the New International Translation, uh, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14 is uh, where we are going to, what we're going to consider together this morning, Matthew 1, 18, sorry, Matthew 18, 1 to 14. Follow along as I read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to him and placed that child among them, in the middle of them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. They inevitably come in a broken world. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders uh, uh, away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is a long section of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. It continues all the way through chapter 18. And this, this teaching is prompted by a question that I think lingers in the mind of everyone who is listening to me this morning. The question is about greatness. The disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest? I think that's a question that lingers in everyone's mind at some point in time. It certainly is in the mind of a lot of sports fans I know. They want to talk about who's the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And they uh, find joy and delight in making endless lists of the greatest pitchers or the greatest quarterbacks or the greatest basketball players. They make lists and lists and they like to argue about whether or not the Chicago Bulls in their height could have beaten the LA Lakers at their height and, and how would that, who's the greatest, who's the greatest? The arguments go on forever. I think, though, there, there's ways in which greatness itself lingers in all of our minds. There, there is something in your life that you want to be great at. 
Maybe not many people know it, but there's something in your life that you want to be great at. Some of you uh, dream of being great athletes. You want to be a great quarterback or a great pitcher, a great point guard. You, uh, even at the Turkey Bowl on Thanksgiving morning when those uh, athletes come to uh, play uh, uh, football, flag football, that you, uh, you have goals. You don't want to humiliate yourself. And it would be nice if someone, if you did something that made someone think you're pretty good. I want to surprise at least somebody. Um, some of you aspire to be great students or uh, great scientists. Some of you have aspired at times to be great performers. You want to be a great actor or a great musician or a great singer. Uh, some of you aspire to be great writers. Many of you aspire to be great cooks or a great baker. Uh, maybe if you were in the army, you aspired to be a great officer. Some of you aspire to be a great mom. I know at least one person who in his life has aspired to be a great preacher. Uh, you aspire to, there's th these aspirations, they're, they're, they kind of, they blossom when we, we tell hero stories or we, we see awards ceremonies. And, and it's not something that you can talk about. That thing you want to be great at, I bet there's not many people in your life who know about it. It's something you, you keep secret. This issue is, the issue here before us, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus tells them, the disciples, that his understanding of greatness is a complete opposite of their understanding of greatness. They have it all wrong. Now, we, we have to give them some credit. They're wrong. We're used to the disciples being wrong. They're wrong, right? But uh, at least they're, they're thinking about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. They're not thinking about being great in wealth or great in military might or great at, at the Roman uh, games. They, they, they at least want to be great in the kingdom kingdom of heaven. And it, this is a sign. This is a sign. They understand that Jesus is the Messiah. They're starting to grow in this. And the Messiah is going to bring in the kingdom of heaven. So they're thinking about this. And Jesus himself had talked to them about being great in the kingdom. He did it way back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Do you remember? Look what it says. Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had said there is greatness to be had in the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are wondering about it. We'll give them some credit. And they're probably, remember what's, what's been going on in the last few uh, months of Jesus' life as we've been walking through Matthew. He, he singled out Peter one day. Uh, You're Peter on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And, and he took only, only Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, where does that leave the other nine of us? Who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. Today we're going to talk about greatness. We're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about what greatness is, and we're going to talk about what greatness does. Before we, before we get into that a little bit more, we, we should uh, remind ourselves where we are in Matthew. Greatness is the precipitating question. It's the question that, that um, uh, leads to this teaching that Jesus does. But we should remember um, that this teaching that Jesus does, the subject is how the members of his new community relate to one another question is greatness, but Jesus expands it, and he talks about how we in, in his new community, he introduced the new community in Matthew 16. He said, I will build my church, 
Now in Matthew 18, he's going to talk about how his people in this new community relate to one another. He makes that explicit in verse 17 of Matthew 18, which Lord willing we'll get to next week, because he talks there specifically about the church. So Matthew 16, there is a church. Matthew 18, here's how the members of that community are going to relate to one another. This is the fourth, Matthew 18 is, the fourth of five great teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew. Do you remember them? There's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus demonstrates his authority over the law of Moses. He can interpret scripture with authority. And Matthew focuses our attention on the portions of that sermon that he delivered that focus on the the principles that endure across time and ages for God's people. He talks about um, hatred and love and forgiveness and prayer and giving, those, those eternal things. Then in Matthew chapter 10, there's a sermon on mission where Jesus sends out his disciples on their first ministry tour. We are sent people too. We learn about what it means to be sent by Jesus in Matthew 10. Matthew 13, he gives a sermon of parables where Jesus tells the disciples that the kingdom is going to unfold in a ways that they don't expect, that they don't, uh, they're not ready for it yet. They, they don't quite understand how the kingdom is going to unfold. And he explains that in some, in, he both explains it and obscures it in Matthew 13. And then now here, Matthew 18, the sermon on community, which is formed in part by our commitment together to being great. So let's talk about what greatness is as Jesus defines it. Um, they come and ask the question, and Jesus calls and sets in front of them as an illustration a little child, a little child. Greatness is embodied in this little child. Look at verses three and four. He said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins by telling them they need to change. There's a change that needs to to take place. You are uh, in the wrong contest. You have a view of greatness that you're pursuing, but it's the wrong contest for Jesus in Jesus' kingdom. It's, it's almost as if Jesus is hosting a pie contest and they brought golf clubs. Or Jesus is going to give away a Nobel Prize for literature and they brought their math bowl calculators. Or Jesus is hosting the North Shore surfing competition off the coast of Oahu and they brought tuxedos and dancing shoes. You're just not in the right contest. There's a change that is necessary. Actually, what's interesting in this passage is that he gives first attention not to being great in the kingdom, but merely entering the kingdom. You have to be childlike in order to get into the kingdom. I'll mention something that we're not going to talk about very much, but you can think about this. One wonders, Jesus talks about being childlike, and he uses this word change, this important word change. One wonders if he's Uh, This doesn't connect to John chapter 3 where he told Nicodemus that in order to enter the kingdom, he needed to be born again. Maybe a connection there. Jesus says, you must become like this little child. He's not talking about being childish, but being childlike. Um, Children, when they're childish, can be self-centered and simple-minded and naive That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What is he talking about? What does he mean when he brings his child and sets him in front of the disciples? Well, I want to suggest to you three things that Jesus might have in mind when he highlights his child and talks about his standards of what greatness 
is, his standards of what greatness are. Um, maybe one of these uh, three things, these overlapping things that Jesus might have in mind. First of all, I think he's thinking about recognizing your status before God, recognizing your status before God. So the child comes and stands in front of these 12 men, in the middle of them, next to Jesus, and this child in front of these 12 men has no status at all. In our culture, we love children, we protect children, we, we value children, we, uh, children have a high status in our culture. In Jesus' day, in this culture, they would not have a high status. You were a high status person if you had a lot of children, but the child themselves, the children themselves, they have no status. They have no wealth to buy your products or to hire you or to pay you to do something. They have no strength to go and work all day in the field or no strength to go fight in the army. They have no wisdom because they're just little children. They have very little value. And what's charming is that there's a certain carelessness about it. They don't yet know how to measure and evaluate people. They have no status and they're not self-conscious about it. You have to teach children to look down on others. You have to teach children to be prejudiced. And, and here's this child is, this child. The, the humility that Jesus is commending is, does not come from them belittling themselves, looking down on themselves, um, talking about how what a terrible person you are. That's not humility in Jesus' sight. The humility that Jesus is commending here is recognizing the status that you have before God. It's almost as if the disciples are fighting over who is going to be king of the hill on a 10-foot dirt pile while, uh, that's right next to Mount Everest. The little child at least has the sense to look up at the sky and say, wow. Don't elevate yourself above your neighbor. Instead, put yourself under God's care. Now, secondly here, recognizing your status before God. Second, we move on to dependence, dependence. Have you ever noticed it is a lot more fun to give gifts to children than it is to adults? Children are such better, so much better at receiving gifts than adults are. Adults, they get awkward. And they start talking, oh, no, you shouldn't have, and I don't deserve this, and oh, my goodness, this is, this is oh, no. And, and they start thinking in their mind about how much they owe you because of the gift that you've just given them. Sheldon Cooper says when you give someone a gift, you don't give them a gift, you give them an obligation. <laughs> an obligation to start planning and start thinking about how much does this cost, and what way in the next month can I give this person this equivalent thing that costs the same, and... and, and uh, Children have none of that consciousness about receiving gifts. It's, this is something that they could not provide for themselves, and here it is, it's a delight. Thank you, thank you. Look, you've just given this to me, and it's, it's wonderful. Oh, think about this dependence in another way. Uh, do you know that the average child asks 125 questions a day? Yeah, I know some of you who have preschoolers, you're like, I, my child is above average. So some of you, 125 questions a day. Do you know how many questions the average adult asks in a day? Six. Six. <laughs> Unless you have children, then you spend all day saying, where are your shoes? That's right, right? So uh, the, uh, the average adult only asks six questions a day, a day. And you know why? Because adults already know everything. They don't, they don't, they're not curious about their world. They don't need anything. They, they, they already know it. They've already figured it out. 
They don't need to ask. Dependence. Third, trust. Trust. Trust is being dependent upon God for everything and actually trusting him to provide it for you. Knowing that you're dependent on and then being glad about that. Trusting him uh, to provide for you. Think with me, just even the the imagery of this, this scene. Here's a little child with Jesus in the midst of these 12 men. Think about your four-year-old child. We don't know if this is a little boy or a little girl. Uh, We don't know exactly how old this child is. But for a minute, think about your four-year-old. And there's a crowd of men, and Jesus calls your four-year-old and says, Hey, come here. Would your four-year-old come and leave you and go stand next to Jesus? Hmm. Doesn't this say something about Jesus and his relationship with children? That this child is willing to come? And here this child is in the midst of these big men, these 12 big men who are thinking about how great they are. Child is there. Child is fine. Why is the child fine? Because he, she, standing next to Jesus. Even the imagery here is, is helpful for us as we, we think about this. Um, yesterday, I went with some of our junior high students to uh, Dorney Park and rode roller coasters we try to go as a family and ride roller coasters in amusement park once a year. And several years ago, we went to Hershey Park uh, for our uh, annual trip. And my children decided that it would be fun to ride repeatedly a ride called the Sky Rush at Hershey Park. There it is in all its terror. Um, so uh, my children, um, the year we went to Hershey Park, Luke wasn't quite old enough to ride rides like this by himself, so he needed an adult with him. So that day when we went to Hershey Park, I rode Sky Rush three or four times. Roller coasters, I, I like roller coasters. We get in, you, you go to a roller coaster, normal roller coasters, and you sit down in the roller coaster in a car, and, and I'm happiest when this harness comes down from behind you and locks and belts and bolts and buckles in place. And then you ride on the roller coaster. The Sky Rush, that is not the design. You, up, you climb up into this seat, and then what happens is in, in front of you, what folds down is what is the equivalent of a tray table in an airplane folds down on you, and it's got little handles that you reach out if you can and, and hold on to them. And then the sky rush zips you around the sky, and while you're moving around, you kind of feel like you are floating, unless you're white-knuckle grabbing the handlebars like I do when I ride this ride. So I, I, I went home, and I started to do a little research about the Sky Rush. I think I was looking about the statistics of my chances of dying the next time I ride it. And, and I, I learned a little bit about it, that, that that feeling that you have of floating when it dips and dives around is intentional. There are very smart engineers, groups of, of men and women that have dedicated themselves to designing rides like this that, that A, keep you safe, and B, make you feel like you're not safe. <laughs> and, and thousands of people have, have been on the sky rush at Hershey Park and have lived to tell about it. I changed my attitude that year after, after thinking about this, about how I ride the sky rush. You're supposed to feel like you're floating uh, away. That, it, it, that, that, it's working that way when that happens. And you have to have a certain amount of childlikeness to enjoy it. 
We adults, we want control. We want to establish our own status. We want to provide for ourselves. We want to prove our own independence. We want to walk by sight and not by faith because walking by faith is scary. But the childlike trust that the Lord Jesus is calling us to is recognizing that this world is not run by a group of engineers and safety experts. It's run by an all-wise, loving God who puts us in places where we feel sometimes like we're floating for our good and his glory. It takes some childlike trust to reach that point. Greatness, as the disciples are thinking about it, is, involves clawing your way to the top and tearing other people down and establishing yourself. And greatness in Jesus' kingdom means placing yourself gladly under God's care. That's what greatness is. And to clarify that more, Jesus is going to move on now and he's going to talk about what greatness does. If you're pursuing greatness the way Jesus has pursued greatness, uh, it commends to us, it will manifest itself in how you live. It manifests itself in what you do. And here's some ways in which greatness like this manifests itself. First, verse 5 tells us that greatness welcomes. Greatness welcomes. Verse 5, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. It's interesting, somewhere in this passage... Jesus stops talking so much about just little children and refers to, he does it explicitly, verse 6, little ones, which he defines as those who believe in me, little ones. Your fellow believers who can't promote you, your fellow believers who are hurting, lost, broken, who can't help you, little ones, um, even those who annoy you at times. Think about this, the contrast. The disciples want to be great, and Jesus commended, commends being little. Great people to enter the kingdom of heaven become little people, and then they reach out to other little people and pull them in. I want you to think for a minute about your own areas of competence. Do you have areas of competence in which you're good, things, things that you are, uh, are, are good at? And I want you to think about the attitude that sometimes that competence in you cultivates when you think about people who are less competent in that area and how welcoming you are. Some of you have great competence because you're really tender-hearted and you're merciful and gentle. How welcoming are you to gruff, self-centered people? Or some of you are really smart. God has blessed you with a fine, fine mind. How welcoming are you to, to less smart people? Some of you are very clean people and you like to be clean and your house is clean. It's spotless. How, how welcoming are you to less clean people than you are? Uh, some of you are cultured and classy. Think about the rude and the ignorant. Some of you are quick-witted. Think about the dull. Some of you are really cool. You're really cool. Think about the nerds in your life. People like your parents who are just, just not cool, right? Welcome. Welcome, Jesus. He says, 
in my name. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name, one such child in my name, for my sake, as an expression of their relationship with me, welcomes me, he says. I want you to think about the power that you have, your power that you have. You have power in the circle you're in. So whether it's in your Sunday school class or Mrs. Martin's second grade class or the power you have on your soccer team or the power you have uh, in the band or the power you have in the break room, I want you to think about how you use that power that you have. Do you use your power to welcome in or do you use the power that you have to exclude? Greatness in the kingdom of heaven welcomes. Secondly, it protects. It protects. We move on. So Jesus in verse 5 is welcoming. He's a positive. Now he starts to talk in verses 6 through 9 about the opposite of welcoming, pushing people away. I stated it positively, protects. But Jesus is talking about the opposite, the negative, not pulling people in, but now he's talking about pushing people away. And verse 6 he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That word stumble means that you hurt somebody or that um, you lead them into sinning or you uh, even you lead them into falling away from the faith. Using your power not to welcome little ones, but using your power to hurt little ones, push little ones away. And Jesus says, if you do that, it would be better for you to be dead. It would be better for you to die first to avoid doing that than than to live and hurt somebody like that and face God's judgment. He pronounces woes, verse 7. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. The word woe is important in the Bible. We're going to, in a few weeks, months maybe, when we make it to uh, the, the fifth teaching passage in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a lot of woes. Jesus pronounces woes. And woe is a lament word. It's a, it's a word that you use when you encounter just judgment from God, but it, it, it is so severe that it pulls forth your compassion. Revelation chapter, chapter 8, 1, there's judgment that comes on the earth from God, and there is silence in heaven for half an hour. Even the angels, when they see God pouring out his wrath, they say, woe. Woe to you, Jesus says. But it's interesting, he doesn't mention a specific sin in this passage. He doesn't, he says, um, what are they stumbling into? He doesn't name it specifically. But what he does do is he makes the, the chain, he talks about the whole chain in evil production. It's not just the end, just the, the deed. It's, it's the whole chain against which he, he, against, he pronounces woe. Now, the, the easiest way to think about this, he doesn't mention specific sin, but the easiest way to think about that in our imagination, of course, would be pornography, right? There's the viewing of pornography, the use of pornography, but Jesus has in mind uh, the one through whom pornography comes, the producers, the writers, the actors, the filmers, the uh, editors, the publishers, the promoters, the whole chain, and Jesus says, woe to you. 
I, I just listened a little bit ago to an interview with an Australian uh, theologian. His name is John Dixon. And John Dixon has a new book out, uh, over, uh, an overview of church history. It's called uh, Bullies and Saints. And he wrote it in part because there are a lot of people who have questions about Christianity. They say, if Christianity is true, why are there so many awful things in your own history, like the Crusades or like the Inquisition? Why are there all those horrible things? So he wrote this church history to put some of those things into context. And the interviewer, not to excuse them, but he writes about them. The interviewer said to John Dixon, uh, uh, tell me, what do you think was the worst of the 2,000 years? What was the worst scandal that has hit the church, do you think? And John Dixon said, the worst scandal in church history is the current sex abuse scandal that has rocked many congregations and denominations. That's surprising. I mean, the Crusades, the Inquisition, uh, church defense of slavery, chattel slavery in the United States. All that, I mean, all that. And you say this, this, what we're happening, what's happening now. Hmm. I, I, maybe he's not right, but it's, it's got to be in the top five, right? Our Roman Catholic friends, our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, have had their scandals in this regard appear in the headlines. By the grace of God, to my knowledge, by the grace of God and to my knowledge, there has never been anyone in our church who has been abused in the context of one of our ministries. Nobody in, in our Sunday school classes, on a youth group retreat, in Awana, by the grace of God, to my knowledge, that has not happened. We have men and women in our church who have experienced abuse in other contexts, but by the grace of God, not in our church, to my knowledge. You know, the, the natural instinct that we have when, when news like this happens, and it's, it's been evident in other church bodies that have tried to, to respond to this, the, the natural instinct is to cover these things, to hide them to conceal them. We need to protect the reputation of this church. We need to protect the, the reputation of this denomination. You know what will happen if word about, about this gets out. And this passage tells us that a far greater significance than what the Boston Globe or the Houston Chronicle think about a church is what Jesus thinks about a church. He says, he says, it would be better for you to have died than for you to have done this deed and face God's wrath. There's some people who, who, who at times read the Bible and they question, why does the Bible talk so much about wrath? Why is there all this hell talk, especially from Jesus in the Bible, all this hell talk? This is a great passage to think about this. You know what incites God's wrath? People who hurt and abuse his little ones. God is full of wrath because God is full of love. And, it, and, and God loves his little ones, so he is wrathful against those who will abuse them and hurt them. Listen to me, men. Listen to me, women. God did not entrust your little ones into your care so that you can hurt them. Heed the warning in this passage. There's another one in verse 10. See that you do not, do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. This is a puzzling passage. I don't want to lose the thread of what Jesus is talking about here, the warning here, but we have to think about these details. 
Um, that first phrase, I tell you that they're angels in heaven, this is one of the places in the Bible, one of the few, if not the only place in the Bible, where people create the idea of guardian angels, that everybody has an angel that watches over them, that guards them in particular. It, it does say they're angels. And then we look at things versus he, uh, like Hebrews 1.14. Look what Hebrews 1.14 says. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? It's true, the Bible says angels have helped individuals, that's true, and it's true that um, actually in, in the Old Testament, the emphasis is on angels being assigned to nations so, more, I, I don't think there's enough here to establish that you have a guardian angel. I don't think that's true. Equally puzzling, though, is this phrase, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What does that mean? The rabbis in Jesus' day believed that God was so holy that no creature could be in his presence. No angel could survive. Even an angel could not survive in God's presence. Jesus seems to disagree with that. He says there's angels in heaven, maybe with particular assignments on earth, that always see God's face. What, what he means is that God is always aware. That's what he's saying. God is always aware of what is happening with his little ones. He sees, he knows. We understand the instinct to hide, but you cannot hide from him. You'd be better off dead first before you do something horrible to one of God's little ones. He moves on in verses 8 and 9, and he talks about, he continues on the subject of protection, he repeats here something that he said in Matthew chapter 5. There are dangers that, are, that come from out you hurting somebody else. That's verses 6 and 7. Verses 8 and 9, you, um, something about you bringing stumbling into your life. Now, why does he do this? Um, it is often what is within that manifests itself in harm without. So um, be careful when he says, if your hand or foot caused you to stumble, cut it off or gouge out your eye, he's not commending us to maim ourselves. He's not doing, that's not what he's literally asking us to do, to maim ourselves. What he's doing is he's saying, be serious, be very, very serious about the things that introduce sin into your life, even if they come from within. You need to fight like hell against these things because hell is what is at stake serious about this. Greatness protects. Third, greatness pursues. Greatness pursues. We should think about the parable again that Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, beautiful verses. Look, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. This is a parable that Jesus told many times in various circumstances. And Luke, when Luke records this parable or something similar to it, it seems like Jesus was emphasizing um, finding sinners, lost sinners, and bringing them, reconciling them. Here in this passage, Jesus seems to be talking about um, believers those who already believe, who have wandered off due to a variety of circumstances. 
It's a surprising statement that Jesus makes. It should land in your mind and in your heart with a, a sweetness. How does Jesus respond to us when we wander away from him, we who are believers? How, how does he respond? Jesus is talking in a way that some of you don't have a category for, for, for Jesus. Picture it like this way. Um, let's imagine a teenager involved in a car accident. I'm using my imagination. This is not happening to my children. Or me, for a matter of fact. Well, maybe. We'll talk about that later. So anyway, let's imagine. Imagine a teenager involved in a car accident. He was driving the car, and he did something he, stupid. He was looking at his phone. He wasn't paying attention. He got in an accident, uh, and it's a completely wholly his fault. Two authority figures are going to show up at the scene of the crime. A police officer, probably going to get there first. Police officer is going to come sternly to find out what happened, who did what. And he's going to investigate, and he's going to uh, talk to this young man, and he may, likely, will give this young man a ticket. You broke the law. You did something reckless and foolish and stupid and illegal, and you deserve to be punished for it. Here's the penalty, your ticket, for what you did. It's the policeman's job. It's what he's supposed to do. The second authority figure who will show up at the scene of the accident will be a parent. Dad gets out of his car. Dad is no less excited about the irresponsibility, uh, irresponsibility than the police officer. He's no, no less angry about it than the police officer. In fact, dad's going to have to bear the cost of this accident in a way that the police officer is not. Dad gets out of the car, and what does dad do? He finds his son, he throws his arms around him, and he said, are you okay? Are you okay? It's his highest priority. Are you okay? The, the car may be a wreck, maybe total, but are, are you okay? Dad wants to know, are you okay in body, are you okay in mind, are you okay in heart? We're going to have a conversation about what the irresponsibility behavior of your behavior, but are you Okay. Some of you in your mind, when you think about wandering away from the Lord Jesus, the only thing you have in your mind is the category that Jesus is the great police officer in the sky who wants to come to the scene of the crime to see who he needs to get a ticket. And you don't have in your mind the category that Jesus is like a father who's come to find his wandering child. Now, this is a logic-defying parable. It's a logic-defying parable. There's 99 other sheep. You've got 99 of them, and, and, and the shepherd leaves them out on the hills. Now, commentators will come in, and they'll say, I'm sure they were safe up on the hills, and I'm sure there were other shepherds up on the hills to watch it. That's, that's not part of Jesus' story. He says they're out on the hills. They're away from the pen. They're out on the hills. And he leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one who has wandered off Defying logic, he's not driven by logic at this point in time. He's driven by his love for this lost sheep. And the lostness of the sheep provokes something in the shepherd. It cultivates in the shepherd this compassion that drives him to find the sheep. Jesus' tender heart toward his lost sheep. And he has over this found sheep in verse 13 a joy he does not have over the 99 who weren't lost. Now, there's two ways for us to think about this story. In, in context, we have to think about this. We think about how we care for one another. 
when we wander. We are coming by God's kindness to the end of a pandemic, and we are starting to gather together more in earnest, and more of us are coming in, and, and people have been um, uh, absent from us for a variety of medical health reasons, a variety of things. There are some among our own congregation who have wandered and won't come back or won't want to come back. This is a passage that reminds us that we pursue people like that. We, we look for them. We don't forget them. We don't neglect them. We, we try to, to track them down, bring them back. This passage, though, reminds us that the reason, the second thing to think about this passage, the reason that we can do that, the reason that we can go find them, is because we have been pursued by God like this. We know what it is like to be found. We have been pursued by the Lord Jesus at the cost of his life. He's the good shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep. So that we who were alienated from him in our rebellion against him might find in his name forgiveness and life because he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. We know what it's like to be pursued. Think about it. There's contrast in this passage. There's the woe of Jesus in judgment against those who hurt his little ones. Woe to you. And then there is the great love of Jesus who goes and rescues the wanderers. There's two different visions of greatness in this passage. The disciples, uh, one of them is very natural. Claw your way to the top. And there's one that's supernatural, that comes from the input of being welcomed home, the overflow of God's joy in welcoming you home. I'm so glad you're home. Some of you have great joy at being forgiven. And when we gather together on Sunday, we sing certain songs or we read certain passages or we think about certain truths and you, you marvel. I have, a, I have a high priest who intercedes before me before God's throne. Grace, God's grace is so, it's marvelous, it's wonderful. Your, think about this, brothers and sisters, your joy at being forgiven pales in comparison to God's joy at you coming home. I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad you're back home. That's what drives us out. So it drives us to love one another and, and gather wanderers. I have a book on my shelf. It's about an eye level when I sit at my desk. It's called Great Leaders of the Christian Church by John Woodbridge. I've owned it for about 30 years, and it's got a two or three pages, a two or three page biographies of, of names you would know, people you would know, uh, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham's in there, and John Stott, great leaders of the Christian church. I think about the title of that book, and I wonder what Jesus would make of the title of that book. I suppose the greater question is, do you think about greatness the way that Jesus thinks about greatness? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus, that he is the good shepherd who has come to rescue us from our sinful, rebellious wandering. Lord, we confess to you that we have often pursued greatness 
in the wrong way according to the wrong standards. Lord, we, we want approval and we want esteem and we want respect and some of those wants when they're twisted become we want f- to be feared. Lord, we confess to you that we have sought greatness in the eyes of the wrong people for the wrong reasons. It's been our habit and our practice. We plead with you, Lord, that you would teach us about the greatness that the Lord Jesus commends. Lord, we confess to you the temptation that we face, all too easy to use the power that we have to hurt little ones. Not welcome them, but push them away. Thank you for your mercy to our congregation. Grant that it would continue according to your kindness. Lord, give us hearts that have been filled to overflowing by the joy that you have in rescuing us, the joy that we have in being sheep in your flock. Large hearts that are big enough and wide enough to welcome wanderers of all kinds home. We are your people. You are the, um, the Lord of the church, the head of the body. Help us in our little community, our little outpost, to pursue greatness as you called us to, and to love one another for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.